So Jay, I know Mystique and Destiny raised Rogue after she ran away, but what about before then? Does she have biological parents out there somewhere? For a broad value of somewhere, sure. You mean they're dead? Not that I know of. Disappeared? Well, her dad did do that. What about her mom? Okay, see, Rogue's parents were part of this back-to-nature hippie commune, and her mom... Joined a cult? Ascended to the spirit world. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 245 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to New Orleans Nonsense, because, like we said at the end of last episode, we are skipping forward about a year in coverage to cover the third part of what we have decided to call the New Orleans Trilogy. Um, yeah, that's right, it is more, well, I was gonna say it's more Teeves and Assassins bullshit, but it's really just Assassins this time. I think we've only got a grand total of two Teeves appearing in this miniseries. Yeah, it's true. It's very Assassin-heavy, which is to say it's very brightly colored. It is. You know, you talked about the Assassins wearing black. They they don't. And I don't know if this was the what I'd mostly remembered them from, but these, like, they're wearing orange and purple and stuff. They're They're not subtle. The important part is that whether it's in Brood Trouble and the Big Easy and the Gambit episode of the cartoon, or it's the Gambit and Rogue miniseries, the assassins are in bright colors. Maybe it's black and neon early, maybe it's bright red and orange now, but the important part is that they are brightly colored enough to be extremely stealthy. At some point, while you were saying that, some part of my brain decided that the assassins are juggalos. I'm not sure why, but I'm really certain... I mean, I can't say for sure that they're not Juggalos. I mean, I feel like, I mean, and this this is not an insult to the Assassins, by the way. Like, mad respect to Juggalos and their intense dedication to anti-racist uh, direct action. That's actually super cool. Um, yes, yes, that part I like a lot. Yeah, I'm not sure why that, that just sort of made sense to me, but it did. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, they're complicated. Now, now, as Miles mentioned, this is basically the third part of a trilogy. And that trilogy is predicated on some aspects of Marvel Universe that intersect with, but also exist independent of the X-Men, and are somewhat different from our world. Maybe let's recap those real quick. So, as we just alluded to, in the Marvel Universe version of New Orleans, there are these shadowy, brightly colored guilds. There's the Teeves Guild, which Gambit hails from, and the Assassin's Guild, which Gambit's wife-slash-ex-wife, Belladonna Boudreau, comes from. Now, both guilds were created by and paid extensive tribute to the immortal external Kandra, and in exchange for that, Kandra granted the Teeves long lives and the Assassins superpowers. By the way, it's been it's real, one of my favorite things about the series is we finally actually get to see Assassins with powers. I know! Like, in the first two parts of the trilogy, we keep hearing about the Assassin's superpowers, but their superpowers mainly seem to be dressing very brightly and using weapons to kill people. And I'm just saying, this is the Marvel Universe, neither of those things is uncommon. Well, they've got proper superpowers now. Or maybe they did all along and just weren't using them just to make things more challenging, sort of like Gambit and his big metal boots. But anyway... No one really liked this system except for Kandra, but everyone kind of went along with it because it was tradition, until Gambit um, basically screwed it all up for everybody. How did that happen? 
Well, a little bit before Gambit screwed it all up, Belladonna Boudreaux was rendered comatose while assisting the X-Men in saving Ghost Rider from an alien brood parasite. Belladonna Boudreaux was the daughter of the leader of the Assassin's Guild. She and Gambit had briefly been married until he was forced to kill her brother in a duel and flee New Orleans. Whether and to what extent this technically annulled their marriage is up in the air and never quite firmly established. He definitely refers to her as his wife when she shows back up um, when he's with the X-Men, but it's also very clear that they've been estranged for a very long time. Either way, that becomes largely irrelevant when Belladonna is apparently killed fighting, um, fighting the Brood and some rogue assassins, but not rogue and assassins. She and rogue are fighting assassins who are working against the Assassin's Guild and therefore have gone rogue, but lowercase r. This is really confusing. Let me try this one more time. Members of the Assassin's Guild, including Belladonna's brother, previously thought to have been killed by Gambit, decided to attack other members of the Assassin's and Thieves' Guild because they were in league with the Brood. Those lowercase r rogue factions, in a fight against Belladonna, capital R rogue, and others of the X-Men, and also Ghost Rider, apparently killed Belladonna. Well done. Well, it turned out they didn't do a good job of that because Belladonna was later revealed to be alive. I'm convinced that members of the Boudreaux family just don't die. It's possible. They, they keep getting better, it's true. So Gambit went back to New Orleans, followed by Rogue, in order to steal the elixir of life from the Thieves' Guild and bring his wife-slash-ex-wife back into consciousness. Rogue was guarding the comatose Belladonna when she briefly flirted with the idea of stealing some of Belladonna's memories via Rogue's powers. She got as far as taking off a glove and then decided that no, that was a really bad idea, she wasn't that person anymore. But before she could get the glove back on, the still ostensibly comatose Belladonna grabbed Rogue's bare wrist and wouldn't let go. After making enemies of the Thieves' Guild, the Assassin's Guild, and the immortal external Candor who ran both the guilds, Rogue absorbed all of Belladonna's memories. Now, Gambit, after making enemies of the Thieves' Guild, the Assassin's Guild, and their benefactress Candra, did manage to use the Elixir of Life to revive Belladonna, but unfortunately, since her memories had been pulled into Rogue's mind, she herself was as amnesiac as a movie protagonist. Belladonna wasn't the first person whose memories Rogue had absorbed. There had been several before her. The first one we saw on, on the page, in Rogue's first appearance, in fact, was Carol Danvers. And that's how Rogue got her strength, flight, and vulnerability. But the first one was a kid named Cody. He was the first boy who Rogue ever kissed when she was just a teenager. And it was that was when her powers manifested. Um basically sucking out all of Cody's memories and personality and throwing him into a coma. As we learned from Batman Returns, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it, but a kiss can be deadly if you mean it. Slant rhymes can be deadly if... I don't know. I, that's a bad rhyme, though. Fair. Well, anyway, point being, let's jump into Rogue Number 1, an affair to remember... This is written, as are all the issues, by Howard Mackey, penciled by Mike Wairingo, inked by Terry Austin, and colored by Dana Morshead. We also get color assists by Mike Thomas on number one and Digital Chameleon on number four, but we have a remarkably stable creative team for this. We also have a very fancy cover. 
Uh, just like the Bishop series that came out the same year as this one, um, the cover of Rogue Number One is cardstock with foil, and I remember finding this issue in, ba- in in I think either in your collection or in back issues, and being really excited about that. It's really cool. Waringo has this bright, cartoony, very inviting art style, and I don't know that it's necessarily the best match for this series, especially coming on the heels of the Gambit series that was all dark and moody. But it is really just fun. If I recall correctly, Waringo is best known for having designed um, the character, the DC character Impulse, and you can totally see the roots of that here. Absolutely, yeah. So. We open the issue with Rogue flying above the Hudson River Valley, enjoying the fact that she has awesome powers because, you know, she has awesome powers. And she swoops around these fighter jets and, like, plants a kiss on the windshield of one because this is totally 90s Rogue, flirty and tough and awesome. Okay, so what if it were a Transformer? Would she have turned into a—would she have turned into a plane? Oh, that's a really good question. That kind of reminds me of in the later days of the Ninja Turtles action figures, like in sort of the the mid-90s or so, where they started running out of ideas, so they're like, I don't know, maybe somebody touched mutagen and then touched, like, garbage? Or uh, maybe a pizza chef touched, like, pizza and now he's part pizza? Who, Who knows? Yeah, no, I think my idea was cooler. Well, Rogue is really enjoying this whole plane-making-out-with experience because she's got some kind of heavy stuff coming up. She's about to head to Mississippi. To visit Cody. That's the boy she kissed and rendered comatose um, when her powers manifested. He's been in long-term care ever since, and she goes and visits him every year. So a little bit later on, Rogue tells Gambit about all this at Harry's Hideaway, which is basically the date spot near the X-Mansion, or the decompressing after a mission spot, or the just-want-to-get-drunk spot. Basically, it's the spot. This is definitely a reminder at just how new Rogue and Gambit are as a couple. Of course, they've been together for less than a year, and so this is the first time that Rogue has told Gambit this story. It's the first time she's gone to visit Cody since the two of them probably have met. Gambit has been written so inconsistently over the years, and I think my Gambit feelings are a lot like a lot of people's Cyclops feelings, in that a lot of the Gambit that I encountered was, like, creepy Gambit. And going back here, like, I get why they're such a good couple again. I I totally get it. And I get why people like Gambit, because he's actually really, really good about meeting Rogue where she is. Yeah, one of the exchanges they have here works very well for me. So I usually do both Gambit and Rogue, and I love doing both their voices, but uh, Jay, do you want to do Gambit this time? It's in the past, Cher. We both got pasts. Together, maybe we got a future, ne? You don't understand. My past is my future. I can't escape what I am. There's nothing you or anyone else can do. That day will be with me for the rest of my life. Meanwhile, in a stately New Orleans cemetery... Belladonna and a few of her closest assassin friends mourn her father, because her father, Marius Boudreaux, the head of the Assassin's Guild, died in X-Men Volume 2, number 39, which we'll cover at some point, of natural causes. At which point Belladonna, despite her lack of memory, agreed to take over the guild, and also vowed revenge against Gambit, just, you know, cuz. That's really ironic. How many leaders of the Assassin's Guild do you think die of natural causes? Probably very few, although these are assassins, so I'm sure they try to make it look like people die of natural causes, uh, with their laser guns and giant knives. Oh, maybe maybe it's like the thing in the first of the Dark Elf trilogy, you know, because a knife in the back quite naturally leads to death. Oh, the Dark Elf trilogy. I still really love those books. I haven't read them in a decade, if not more, and I probably won't again because I'm worried they won't hold up, but they were fun. 
I mean, I, I think I, I, I got to them a little bit too late to appreciate them properly, but I'm, I'm definitely all about matriarchal spider cults. You know, fair enough. Now, at this funeral, Kandra, the immortal external Kandra from the Gambit miniseries, shows up with a sales pitch instead of flowers, saying that, hey, maybe it's time to bring that whole pact thing back so that Belladonna can get revenge on Gambit. Okay, serious question. Who would you prefer to have crash the funeral of the loved one, Magneto or Kandra? Right, because Magneto crashed Ilyana's funeral, and that was terrible. I feel like Kandra's probably a better option because she at least does a great deal less property damage. The thing is, though, I feel like under the vast majority of circumstances, Magneto would be way more respectful than Kandra. Yeah, but not like Fatal Attraction's Magneto. He's super villainous. Point. Point. On the other hand, he pretty much shows up, does his thing, and leaves. Kandra sticks around. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't take no for an answer about that whole pact thing. Well, after the funeral, Belladonna's decided it's time for her to take her final test to lead the Assassin's Guild, which is apparently murdering a whole bunch of hands ninja assassins. She does. Uh, I have two theories as to why she wins. Theory one is the law of conservation of ninjutsu, where the more ninjas you have in any one place, the more you have to divide the finite quantity of ninjutsu in the area between them. This is also known as inverse ninja law, as popularized in the fantastic webcomic The Adventures of Dr. McNinja and illustrated in a whole, whole, whole lot of things. Yep. And my other possible justification for this is that the hand assassins only wear red. They only wear one bright color, whereas Kandra and her assassins guild wear multiple bright colors and thus are stealthier. Yeah, the hand are comparatively downright understated. Mm-hmm. So, after she murders a whole bunch of ninjas, she gives the order, it is time for revenge against uh, Gambit and Rogue, she guesses. Mostly Rogue. In fact, when Rogue gets to the sanatorium where Cody's comatose body was being kept, she finds, not Cody, but instead, a whole bunch of assassins waiting there to murder her. Instead of jumping to the logical conclusion, namely that Cody had turned into a large number of assassins, um, Rogue waits and learns from a holographically projected Belladonna that this is all assassin stuff. Specifically, Belladonna has decided that she's going to take everything away from Rogue because Rogue took everything from her. And Jay, uh, I will give you total credit. You were right last episode when I didn't think that Rogue had permanently absorbed Belladonna's memories, and you did. It turned out, yes, Rogue totally permanently absorbed Belladonna's memories. This is just like that goddamn pony. <laughs> oh yeah, Bill. Yeah, so, no, I, I want our listeners to know about this. This was traumatizing. So, I reread all of Lord of the Rings. I basically just marathon reread it before the first movie came out. And we go see it, and Miles insists, insists that Bill the Pony died in the books. And he, like, even though I've just read them, and I don't remember this, but I'm sort of, I, I start doubting myself and thinking, well, you know, maybe I misread it, maybe I got something wrong. Bill the Pony does not die in the books. He doesn't die in the movies either. I, I was so convinced he did. Maybe it was in that Lord of the Rings parody, Board of the Rings, that we used to read. Well, regardless, I'm very sorry for inadvertently pony gaslighting you. Like, that's a combination of two really terrible things at once. <laughs> Ponies and gaslighting. Two terrible tastes that taste terrible together. Mm-hmm. 
Well, anyway, I have objections not only to pony gaslighting, but also to Belladonna's logic. Because, yes, Rogue did take Belladonna's memories away, but that was after Belladonna's comatose body, for some goddamn reason, reached out to touch Rogue's bare skin. I'm just saying, you cannot blame Rogue for this, lady. Well, you can blame Rogue for having her glove off at the time, which was not a great idea. Um, and you, you can you can blame Rogue for failing to contain her powers in a situation with someone who is literally not cognizant of their own actions, but you can't blame her to the extent that Belladonna's blaming her. I'm just saying, if there's a comatose lady sitting next to me, I don't expect her to be flailing around. Well, clearly you don't live in the Marvel Universe. That's probably for the best. Now, Rogue flies off to find Gambit and or Cody, because clearly they're both in dire peril. Gambit, for his part, is left in New York, and he does what he and Rogue do, which is decide, you know, I know she said she needed to do this alone, but fuck it, I'm gonna go with her. And bikes off to Mississippi. Which brings us to Rogue number two, Choices. Um, in which Tanta Maddie is the only reasonable person. Uh, she is... As you may recall, the 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 woman who, a, a woman who had known Gambit and Belladonna since they were little kids, she is a substantially accomplished magic worker, um, and she is the only person who points out that it was a really bad idea to steal a comatose patient from a long-term care facility, and that Cody is now definitely dying. But Belladonna doesn't give a shit. She figures, well, if Cody dies, then that's also Rogue's fault because everything is Rogue's fault. Oh come on, Belladonna. So this bugs me because Belladonna is just so petty and vindictive in this series, and I get it, she's a different person, she's lost her memories, but the Belladonna we met in Brood Trouble in the Big Easy was fucking cool, and I miss her. Well, Belladonna woke up to really, really weird circumstances, and we don't know what she's been told about her life before this. We don't know what she's been told about what happened to her. We do know that she came back with almost no memories and then almost immediately lost the one person who was, you know, her one family member. So, I mean, while she is being awful, I feel like, again, we we don't really know what's going on in her head here. And she's she's had a pretty rough last year. No, that's true, that's true. I just wish she could, like, get some counseling and go back to being awesome and having a confusing accent. Right? Well, Belladonna tells Tanta Mati that if Mati's not going to help with Belladonna's plan, then Mati can fuck right off. What Mati actually does is use magic to contact Rogue, who's just taken a break in her marathon flight to New Orleans, and she tells Rogue that she should go save Gambit. Yeah, Maddie's going to take care of the comatose Cody as best as can be done. And this is interesting because Maddie, like, manifests as part of the water near the lake that I can only assume Rogue has stuck her head in to drink out of, like a deer or a wolf or something. We also know that Maddie's a healer. I assume these are powers she got from Kandra. Does she have, like, the most ill-defined powers ever? I had actually specifically thought that her powers, I mean, she's got a very standard magic user power set, so I assumed that that was just her thing. Maybe. I don't know. Like, this is where I wish we knew anything about the powers that the assassins got, because they are all incredibly ill-defined, except for a couple of the characters we meet later in the series, come to think of it. But but most of them are incredibly ill-defined. You know what they kind of remind me of? What's that? Fitzroy's cronies. 
Oh yeah, yeah, the uh, mulleted um, prisoners that Fitzroy brings to the present, and then they all like do their thing and die and have mullets. Yeah, and again, they have these super, super vague powers. Yeah, yeah, basically that. I think it's just the 90s. This is just how things work in the 90s. Now, Tantamati is is right that Gambit needs saving because, again, Kandra is back in the Big Easy, and she is still working on Belladonna, trying to convince her to reestablish their old pact. But before we go into that, we have to talk about Kandra's outfit. Now, the last time we saw Kandra, she was wearing what I would call, like, a crimson Goblin Queen light outfit with the big cape and the long sleeves and the tiny panties and the big boots. And now, the best way I can describe her is she looks kind of like a lobster in Japanese rope bondage. Like, she has these sort of horizontal, stiff plates of something with, you know, a bunch of rope underneath and fancy patterns. I... I'm not sure if I would draw that particular analogy, but I like what I'm currently picturing just based on that description enough that I think we should let it stand. Well, there it is. It's official. Kandra's real power is that she's a lobster in Shibari. Anyway, lobster or otherwise, she wants to talk Belladonna into going back to the pact. I have always had a special place in my heart for the Assassin's Guild, Bell. Your father, his father, all of your family were like my own kin. It is a shame that all the years of tradition have been allowed to fall apart. But now we stand here preparing to rectify the recent errors of the past. True? Well, I'll give Kandra one thing. She uh, helps reinforce my firm belief that the externals are all jerks. Oh, 100%. Now, Gambit, for his part, is mooning over Rogue as he makes his way south through Mississippi. And as a road trip nerd, I can in fact confirm that, as the as the comic implies, this is indeed a reasonable two-day trip. Um, although I am loath to believe that Gambit wouldn't tr- try to go straight through. And yeah, this version of Gambit, you were mentioning earlier, Jay, that you like the Gambit that's presented here and in this scene. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this is a Gambit I really, really like, and he's very specifically very committed to non-threatening performative flirtation with with these young women who pull up to ask him for directions while being dead gone on rogue and that got me thinking and i realized that in a lot of ways gambit is an interesting study in class and performed sexuality in the same ways or in ways that overlap a lot with patrick swayze's character in dirty dancing and then that revelation made me like gambit a lot more so I feel weird about it. But seriously, I didn't really make the connection until this point. And then plus thinking back to um, Ultimate Gambit, for whom this is a little bit more explicit early on. But yeah, his flirtation is 100% a survival skill. Yeah, that does make him significantly more sympathetic. I, I completely agree. And especially, you know, now that we're in the era of Gambit not being actively creepy, of him just being flirtatious. And like, there's nothing wrong with being, being flirtatious if you do it right. And he does. Well, and specifically, it's not that he, it's not even that he's flirtatious. It's that he's charming. Yes, yes. He uh, c- combines the two in ways that, that make me happy. Well, and he's he's charming in general and in fairly gender agnostic ways. And in ways that, again, are all about having been, you know, an orphan and this kid on the fringe who, in the same way, you know, other characters compensated in different ways. And the way he survived was to make himself irresistibly likable. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Gambit's charm 
can't get him out of this one because while he is at the gas station giving directions to the pretty young ladies in the convertible and having a lot of feelings about Rogue, he is attacked by a group of assassins led by a man named Grigri. Have we talked about this guy yet? Uh, no, I don't believe we have. We have a number of named assassins in this story, and he's one of them. So his name actually has a source in a number of voodoo traditions that go back even further. Um, and a Grigri traditionally, I believe, is a sort of small charm. This is outside of my primary area of expertise, so I have had to consult Dr. Internet, and I may be a bit off. Um, if you know more about this or if you've got more perspective on this, I would very much love to hear it. My understanding is that it's got different subjective meaning in different um, in different traditions, especially mainly divided by geography, and in some it means a practitioner, in most it means some kind of charm, which, again, depending on the tradition and locale, can be either focused on good luck or bad luck. And with this guy, it mainly seems to represent the fact that he uses voodoo magic and his ambiguous gifts from Kandra to um, be a real badass and really fuck with people. Yes, um, he's fairly effective, but you know what's you know what's stronger than magic and stronger than assassin skills? Punching. I was gonna say rogue. Rogue. That's right. Rogue is here to save the day and. Man, when these two are written well, they're pairs punching and sass. It's, I mean, it's it's like watching couples figure skating or something. They've got that chemistry, they've got that precision, and it's great. Oh yeah, let's do this little bit of dialogue right here. Alright. You want to tell me what you're doing here instead of down Mississippi way, like you said? I just couldn't resist your Cajun charm and felt the overwhelming need to fly to your side. I'll accept that for now, mostly because who could blame you and because I don't think we're gonna going to have enough time for me to get the truth. They kick a whole bunch of assassin ass and then snuggle by a campfire that night. And Rogue tells him, no, seriously, you need to let me deal with this alone. I love, and I said this already, I'll say it again, how every chapter of stories about them involves one of them saying, no, I have to go do this alone and leaving in the middle of the night, and the other pausing briefly and then saying, wait, no, what the fuck? Right. And sure enough, Rogue does leave in the middle of the night while Gambit's sleeping, giving him a cue to look off in the direction that she presumably flew and say, Look at this here. I be the thief, Cher. And there you go off, stealing my heart. I'm sorry, uh, my ga- I'm sorry, my Gambit is just not living up to yours. I'm just saying, I had years and years of practice. You'd be the thief, Cher. You'd be the thief, Cher. I'd, it's, it's, man, it, I, I need to just, like, sit at home and do this for hours. Is that what you did? Is that what you spent your childhood doing? Mainly, I just watched X-Men the Animated Series, like, a lot. Rogue, for her part, does indeed make it to the French Quarter to find a whole lot of assassins waiting for her in Rogue number three, The Gauntlet. Fortunately, the law of conservation of ninjutsu also applies to non-ninja assassins, and Rogue is able to hold her own fairly effectively against these guys. Unfortunately, they still accomplish their purpose. They're not there to kill her so much as they are to stall her. And indeed, they do. Thankfully, Gambit, in going along with his and Rogue's fine tradition of never leaving the other alone, is biking toward New Orleans, and on the way to join Rogue in her grand melee, meets another thief, a guy named Lapan. Now, you can tell Lapan is a thief because he's got a mullet, tall boots, and a dramatic tunic coat thing. Yeah, the thieves all kind of dress like they might be 
um, French Revolution reenactors. They're pretty great. Maybe that's what they do, uh, you know, in their in their free time. Actually, no, I think it's more like they're they're French Revolution themed burlesque performers. Yeah, okay, I totally buy the burlesque thing. Well, Lapan does an interpretive and sexy dance to tell Gambit that Gambit really should not be entering New Orleans. Both guilds are totally after him. Lapan cannot guarantee his safety, and Gambit's like, eh, whatever. There's this awesome lady who I'm really into, so you know, fuck danger. Um, and so he heads straight into New Orleans and promptly gets captured by a dude named Fifolet. Now, we'll actually see more of this Tief Lapan in Gambit Volume 3, and I just want to go into this quote from the Marvel fandom wiki, Jay, if you wouldn't mind. Lapan also voted in the vote of no confidence that Theorin and Grieg recalled when Remy was the leader of the Unified Guild. He voted for his cousin, chanting, Remy, Remy, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Except, like, presumably in a very, very thick New Orleans accent? I don't know. But, despite the fact that Gambit's been captured off in plot B, Rogue does make it to Belladonna's assassin mansion, and she's confronted by a couple of those assassins, the aforementioned Grigri and the aforementioned Fifolet. Uh, Grigri, to prove that they have Cody, shows Rogue his hospital bracelet, oh, and Gambit's glove, and then blows voodoo dust in her face to freak her out. But Rogue... Yeah, so something I love about Rogue in this series is that, yeah, she's strong, but the, her moments of the, of significant triumph are all from her just being stubborn as hell. I love that even though Grigri has very effectively pulled a Batman scarecrow on Rogue with his fear powder, and that Rogue does see those awesome Waringo-drawn, exaggerated, scary faces of the assassins that she's facing, she just sort of punches her way out of it. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about Rogue, is that her willpower is generally channeled through her fists. It's very cathartic. She's immediately confronted by a very amorous Gambit, who, when she confronts him about the fact that he's clearly not actually Gambit, morphs into Cody and then Carol Danvers taunting Rogue about how she destroys everyone she gets near. This is, in fact, Questa, who is another assassin. And as much as this miniseries is very much about Gambit's backstory, I do appreciate these little plot elements that keep coming up that are all about Rogue's own psychology and her own history and her own conflicts, and this is very much one of those points. One of the intrinsic challenges of doing a Rogue miniseries at this point is that her backstory was still largely a mystery, and it was also very pointedly something she had distanced herself from, and what was established about it was pretty simple. I mean... Ironically, for, for for all of the being raised by Mystique and Destiny stuff, Rogue actually had a pretty normal, straightforward childhood, sucked out Cody's powers, fell in with the Brotherhood for a while, and then went to the X-Men. Like, that's pretty much it. Pretty much, yeah. Now, after some more punching, Kandra finally shows up and leads Rogue to her three captives. Gambit, Cody, and Tanta Maddie, and they're all in those appropriate uh, turbine manacles. I guess those are overkill for Cody since he's in a coma, but still, you know, it's important to be consistent. It's super overkill for Cody. Oh my god! Belladonna is also there, itching for revenge, and so Kandra, whose main philosophy is, I'm really bored, let me just fuck with people and see what happens, decides to depower both Rogue and Belladonna and have them fight. Kendra has a lot of supernatural abilities, but her main power is that she's a big jerk. Pretty much that. 
Belladonna actually has one power that remains, though, and that is a knife. Stab, stab, stab. She stabs Rogue, like, really hard, and without Rogue's invulnerability, that sucks a lot. That note left me thinking and sort of wondering about under what paradigm a knife would count as a superpower. And I was thinking about that actually pretty seriously. And what I finally came to is that I would count it only if it were sufficiently intrinsic to Belladonna's sense of self that it were that it was an aspect of, of her identity, of, of how she saw herself, of who she was. Um, in the same sense that, you know, adaptive technology might be for someone who uses it. Or, you know, again, sort of looking at the knife as a type of very, very rudimentary transhumanism. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think we can actually call that knife a superpower. I just wanted to say stab, stab, stab. And so you did. And that brings us to rogue number four, back to life. Rogue's basically okay. She's just a little bit stabbed. But I would like to take this moment to repeat a point that I have made before and will make again. Namely, why do people always pull the knife out? Don't do that. That is how you bleed to death. I mean, it's probably pretty limiting to her mobility, and she still has to punch things. Okay, but seriously, if you ever get stabbed, real people, don't do that. Get medical assistance, but leave whatever is stabbing you there because there's a decent chance that it's holding your blood in. And your blood should totally stay inside your body. Correct. Despite having gained the upper hand, Belladonna is getting more and more suspicious of Kandra, who it's pretty clear is only on Kandra's own side. Kandra doesn't give a shit. Your petty vendettas concern me not at all. I am an external... I will see you die and turn to dust in a blink of my existence. Or I could crush all the life from your body with this telekinetic field. You, your guild, the thieves, the world matter only as they serve me. You assassins and thieves have become quite full of yourselves over the years. Do you think I couldn't, I wouldn't, wipe you all out in a moment if it served my purposes? It hasn't. At least not until now. So do not push me, girl. And Belladonna, for her part, doesn't push. But that's mainly because she still really wants to get her revenge on Rogue. Kandra also drops the juicy detail that those power drains are only temporary. She just keeps on changing the rules of this fight. It's like shitty Calvin Ball. Kandra Ball? The worst! The worst game! Not actually the worst game. I'd say the Game Master is still probably worse at games. That's probably true. Well, Rogue, who has run away, takes a minute to have some feelings about briefly not having powers. I mean, her powers she's seen largely as a curse up until this point, but she's too busy kicking a lot of ass to dwell on it for long. I like her so much. Then Rogue and Belladonna slug it out, and Rogue totally calls Belladonna on her bullshit, and it's great. What do I have to do? You sliced open my glove. My powers are coming back. Do you want me to absorb the rest of your memories? Is that what you want? Belladonna's accent goes in and out. I think she might have forgotten some of it when she lost her powers. Maybe. All you left me with is a heart full of hate. I can't remember any beauty anymore. Any joy. All I can remember is how to kill. How to destroy. That's bull, lady! My powers don't work that way! If there's anyone to blame for the hate that's eaten at you, it's you! You've got to have made the choice to remember only the ugliness. Now, Kandra tries to tempt Rogue 
with the idea of, of keeping her powers off for good. Then when Rogue turns her down, plays the you can only save one card with Gambit and Cody. Saving somebody's life versus being free of the powers that have been torturing her. Again, this is totally a rogue story, and that's that's how you do this. That's how you bring in the conflicts that are so innate to who Rogue is. I really like the extent to which Rogue in this story is playing and is cast in a role relative to the characters around her that's almost exclusively reserved for male characters. Yeah, I mean, having to make those choices, having to make those sacrifices, like, she gets to be a full-on protagonist. And, you know, you're right, a lot of the time female characters don't. Well, and also that the guys in this situation are there as foils to her character development, Cody in particular. Like, can you, it, it's very, very easy to imagine a female character in Cody's role relative to a male superhero. And I think it's kind of significant that, again, Cody is the one in that relatively vulnerable passive position. Yeah, really good point. Rogue breaks through Kandra's telekinetic field, basically through sheer goddamn force of will, uh, manages to save Gambit, catches Cody, but Cody's still dying. And Tantamati lets Rogue say goodbye, using, again, her very ill-defined powers. And she does this by touching Rogue's cheek, and I guess she's lending Rogue her powers, and I don't know if that works or doesn't with, le with learned skills and arcane powers or what's going on here, but either way, Rogue is able to meet Cody in a dreamlike approximation of the place where they first kissed, although for some reason he looks like he's eight. Yeah, I think that's just Waringo's art style. When he draws Rogue and Cody in a flashback earlier in the miniseries when they're kissing, they look very, very young. Anyway, Cody basically tells Rogue that they're cool and she should move on. And my theory here is that this isn't actually Rogue and Cody talking. This is Tantamati just being like, kid deserves some closer, let's give it to her. I mean, I actually kind of dig that, yeah. What I dig less, though, is that Rogue needs forgiveness from Cody. I mean, I wish she could just forgive herself the way she did for what happened with Belladonna, because what happened with Cody wasn't her fault any more than the Belladonna thing. I mean, I think a lot of what she has to come to, come to terms with with Cody is that it's possible to cause tremendous, tremendous harm, and to some extent to be accountable for tremendous harm, even unintentionally. I mean... It's it's the reason that manslaughter and murder are both crimes, but they're different crimes. Um, what really blows my mind is that Spectral Cody tells Rogue that she's the best thing that ever happened to him. That that seems iffy to me. I think that lends credence to your theory that it's just Tanta Maddie trying to give Rogue some goddamn closure. That is literally the only way I am okay with this conversation. So that's the Rogue miniseries. In a lot of ways, it's a follow-up to plot threads related to Gambit, but I really enjoy that it's about Rogue's inner journey and inner struggle, even if those plot elements and those characters are all still present. I don't think it's nearly as strong a miniseries as Gambit, just because the Gambit miniseries was incredibly solid, but it's a nice pairing with it, and it's nice to see Rogue get some time in the spotlight. Meanwhile, though, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, do Polaris and Scarlet Witch have white magneto hair that they dye? I could totally see how you might think they would, because Quicksilver totally has white hair. But no, I mean, Polaris has green hair naturally, Wanda has reddish-brown hair naturally. Polaris did dye her hair a vaguely normal color for a while, but that was only for a while. Yeah, I think she only did that in the Silver Age. 
I bet that Polaris's hair will look pretty cool when she gets old, though. Like, she's going to have this sort of gray-green sea witch kind of deal going on. Oh, hell yeah. I guess, I don't know. So if Pietro has white hair and Magneto has white hair, but the daughters don't, maybe it's one of those Y-chromosome-linked genes? Maybe it's just random story decisions that have uh, added into a continuity that doesn't fully make sense? What I want to know is where Pietro got the antennae. Uh, it's, you know, insect genes. I think way, way, way back in uh, the Lenger slash Eisenhart family history, there were some dalliances with mystical bug people. Miles, there's a much, much easier way to get there. Oh? Mount Vendegar. Oh, yeah. Let's just blame the High Evolutionary. We should probably blame him for pretty much everything in the Marvel Universe. One million very good warlocks, asks on Tumblr. Do you think the podcast will ever cover the Ultimate Universe X-Men? What's your take on that universe? What were some successes and pitfalls of that iteration of continuity? So, normally we don't answer questions covered in our fact on the podcast, but because I was thinking about Ultimate Gambit earlier, I decided to just sort of go ahead with this one. It's also a question we get a whole lot, which is why it's in the Frequently Asked Questions. Um, my respective answers are maybe, and I have a lot of kind of com- complicated opinions about the Ultimate Universe. Basically, I like some things about it, and I dislike a lot of things about it. I'm generally very much in favor of radical reimaginings of basic concepts in superhero universes. I think it's a really cool idea, and I think the idea of making a distilled-down, self-contained Marvel universe that was a better entry point, or or just a, a place to go for people who wanted more straightforward stories than the incredible Gordian knot of continuity that the larger Marvel universe had become, was a good plan. However... The Ultimate Universe very quickly became its own Gordian Knot and then merged with the previous Gordian Knot, and basically it completely failed to serve that purpose on an ongoing basis, especially in the X-Men line. Also, Ultimatum is crap. Now, I have wildly mixed feelings about the art in Ultimate X-Men, and I'm not super fond of a lot of the writing. There are some good parts, but unfortunately the best of it is by a writer whose name or whose work I basically refuse to endorse for um, for reasons related to to um, publicly abusive behavior. So that sort of ties that one up. Yeah, I hear you. I really, really love the post-Ultimatum, Ultimate X-Men. But um, yeah, there's that whole thing. It's very awkward and very unfortunate. What's not unfortunate are our listeners, and thanks to them supporting us through Patreon, we're able to do this podcast and do it ad-free, and some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. What's up, Angry Claremontian narrator? You thought you could seek the revenge you so richly crave, Will Buckingham, but it turned out that you were instead hostage to the cruel whims of Colin McGonagall. Is your revenge worth the price of your dignity? Your relationships? Your very home? If so, you'd better keep it entertaining, or all this will have been for naught. Of course, you've got the sinking suspicion that that might turn out to be the case regardless. And, appropriate to the series we covered today, the mic here goes to Sexy Rogue. I do declare... Y'all done followed me to New Orleans, even though I told you to let me handle all this Belladonna nonsense on my own. Now, sugar, I think it's time we had a little talk about agency and... What's that? Y'all just here to ask for flirtation advice? 
Well, that's a whole nother pale apple butter. Megan, one of the best ways to flirt is to kiss some attractive body's windshield when they travel. Why, this one time, I made out with a fighter jet and... Oh, you're not invulnerable and you can't fly. Well, maybe you could give some attractive person's Segway a peck. And Eli Morris Heft, I got a good one for you. The best flirting is over a fist fight. Maybe against some ninjas or against your sweetheart in a robot murder room. Oh, you're not super strong. Well, how about some sweet nothings over a card game? I don't know about you, Eli, but Uno really gets this girl's blood a-pumpin'. But just remember, let's keep that sexiness to just words. Skin against skin can lead to all kinds of problems. Not the least of which is your Bose amnesiac ex-wife sending bright red assassins after your comatose childhood makeout buddy and passing him along to an immortal bondage lobster. Why, if I had a nickel for every time. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's a clash between two avatars of an age. As Adam X and Shatterstar face off once again. (laughs) 